Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at Cambridge Judge Business School. In this series, specialists from the Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on innovation ecosystems. Innovation is essential for economic growth and corporate performance, but it's increasingly recognised that innovation is not bounded within the firm or within the organisation, but takes place within the ecosystem, often with multiple players. How do businesses and other organisations cultivate innovation ecosystems? And, and at the geographical level, how can cities or regions build local innovation ecosystems? Joining me today to discuss this topic are Dr. Blinda Bell, Director of the Cambridge Social Ventures Programme at Cambridge so Centre for Social Innovation, Professor Shaz Ansari, Professor of Strategy and Innovation and Director of the MPhil Programme in Innovation, Strategy and Organisation, and Dr. Chris Coleridge, Senior Management, Senior Faculty in Management Practice at Cambridge Judge Business School. So welcome to my three guests today. Um, perhaps we can kick off with what is an innovation ecosystem? Is it just another buzzword in from business schools in management or is it, does it have content? Uh, Shaz, perhaps you kick off. What is an innovation ecosystem? Yeah, I'd like to believe it's more more than a buzzword. At least uh, that's that's been uh, there have been attempts in academia to uh, define it in terms that uh, go beyond just uh, ecosystem being just a biological metaphor imported into our uh, field. Um, it's at the end of the day, it's a group of companies, users, um, other kinds of players that come together to uh, to uh, create something new, create something novel, to create something of value. They can't do that. They can't uh, manage alone. Uh, in a world of increasing interdependencies and uh, resource paucity and resource constraints, companies have realized that they can't go can't go it alone. So they have to collaborate. They have to uh, uh, depend on others for even stuff that they used to do alone. And for this reason, ecosystems have uh, is a useful metaphor that's replaced industries, especially when you consider that industry boundaries have also become blurred. So there's it's not limited to industries anymore. The company operates across several industries, and an ecosystem captures that better than the word industry, I would argue. Chris, do you want to add anything to that? Well, if we think about what's driving uh, this buzzword, you know, why it's no longer just a buzzword, uh, we're, we're thinking about um, companies, large companies, realize that they need to innovate continuously. And if they're going to innovate continuously, uh, they're going to have to reconfigure themselves and find ways to reconfigure the way that they work with their partners, the way that they work with their customers uh, in new ways as well. And so having a set of specialist players that they can do that with, who, who they know, who they trust, who they've been able to build up relationships with, is, is, is more efficient than starting from scratch every time you want to do a new innovation project. So I think that's why we're seeing this, uh, this concept come to the fore. Can I just push you on that? What, what, what do you mean by innovation in this context? Because there's very many forms of innovation. Often traditionally we think innovation is coming up with a new product or a new widget. Do, does it, do you have a broader notion of innovation here? Sure. So it might be that uh, companies are trying to respond to changes in their environment. That, that it, it might be that companies are seeing ways that uh, new technologies can be incorporated into uh, new business models that are going to enable them to serve their customers better. Uh, it might be that uh, society is changing and uh, the, the innovating company needs to respond to the way that, uh, that people value different things from what, uh, what they used to value. Belinda, your, your specialist area is social innovation. Do, do ecosystems apply there? Yeah, absolutely. But we do, I guess, start from a slightly different position in that um, social innovation is looking to address the fact that decades of global development and economic um, 
changes haven't led to equitable outcomes. And so the overarching purpose when we're thinking about our innovation ecosystems uh, is about trying to kind of create more sustainable and just and equitable societies. So it kind of comes from a different place. Um, and it's interesting, this idea about novelty or creating widgets and um, and often I think in, in all types of innovation, the innovation is not about um, doing something uh, that's completely blue sky and novel, but it's about taking something from the commercial sector and applying it to the social sector, for instance, or taking something that works in one part of the social sector and, and making it work better. Um, but there's definitely an ecosystem part to it. And in fact, um, uh, some of our colleagues here at the Centre for Social Innovation um, wrote a paper in, in 2017 thinking about social entrepreneurs, social intrapreneurs, and social extrapreneurs. So the entrepreneurs and, and intrapreneurs are fairly self-explanatory, but social extrapreneurs are the people who connect together the players in the social innovation ecosystem. Sometimes those are called um, boundary spanning functions in, in mm. other domains, is that right? Yes, absolutely. These people who can move across boundaries and connect various yes. players. Sometimes people and sometimes uh, potentially institutions. So some of the work that we do at the Centre for Social Innovation, we contextualise as being social extrapreneurship. So, so, so how, how, how do we build an effective innovation ecosystem, be it in the private sector, public sector or, or third sector space? I mean, what, what, is the, what are the key characteristics of an effective innovation ecosystem, if we believe it's something about collaboration as well as presumably competition, which is the, the normal thing you look at in terms of where business perform. Shaz, what, what do you think the, the, the key features of an effective uh, innovation ecosystem are? Uh, so there, there could be uh, two ways of looking at it. Ecosystems can be thought of as a structure of organizations. It can be thought of uh, as a relationship, affinity-based ecosystem. So I think the key criteria is they should all believe in that. Uh, project joint value creation that they're looking for. So there is the free rider problem, the classic issues of lack of commitment, lack of participation. So same collective action problems as in any large group applies to ecosystems as well. So and the key features is the design, incentive systems, resource interdependencies, that would be the, the hard side I would argue, or the, the, the pull side. On the push side, there should be a feeling of affinity, identification, being in it together, a sense of Venus, a sense of sharedness and uh, affiliation so that these people actually, people get a sense of commitment to what they're doing together and believe there's value in that collective project as well as for them individually. Of course, there's competition and collaborations and so that that's something that they have to manage this paradoxical tension throughout. But that's true for every management uh, situation. There's always uh, tensions between cooperation, collaboration, control versus autonomy, centralization versus decentralization, those will always be present. There's nothing uh, different in a part of the ecosystem. But do you often have a key player within an e innovation ecosystem that probably could actually dominate? We, we, we tend, it's not a condition, but often we do. So we call them hub players, call them focal organizations. So um, I think you could argue whose perspective are you looking at? For, so there's a, there's a hub player around which a particular ecosystem could be could, could, could sort of uh, bloom, but there could be another player in the ecosystem within, with two overlapping ecosystems between those two players. So ecosystems are not non-overlapping, they're multiple, they overlap with each other, but yes, usually there's a focal player that, that you could argue is orchestrating this collective action or joint work within that ecosystem. I'm still trying to understand how these ecosystems emerge. Are they, did they just spontaneously emerge or are they constructed or? How, how do they develop? 
so at the very beginning, it would be based on relationships, uh, forming relationships and, uh, and, and, and the need. So the need for doing something that you can't do alone. So I guess it's, it's, it's a lot. So you could argue what's the difference in ecosystems and alliances. Uh, all these terms are related. You always formed alliances, strategic alliances. Why did alliances emerge? If you take that forward, why do ecosystems emerge for the need to do something that can't be done by an individual actor? Chris? One, one of the exciting things about this from uh, the point of view of a business school is that uh, ecosystem management requires some new strategic management skills, right? So uh, where uh, we, we, Shaz has referred to it a couple of times that perhaps in the past, these hub players or these focal players would have relied on their purely on their economic power. They develop some kind of product, they develop some kind of service, everybody gets locked into that, they have to work with it, right? We might think about Microsoft 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, now what's the next step? You've got this economic power, do you use it to squeeze your counterparts and to really uh, say, okay, well, we've got power, that gives us the chance to maximize our profits? Or do you see life as more uh, economic life as more of a repeated game where you're going to be relying on the goodwill of your counterparts in the future and therefore you might see your role uh, in, in, the, in the center of the ecosystem as a stewarding role. And so this, uh, the, the, the management skills uh, for orchestration, uh, as, as Shaz referred to, uh, and leadership uh, are different to the management roles of, okay, how do we maximize uh, our position this year? So that, that would that would that would create a challenge, presumably, because you need to change organizational culture if you're going to create a, a, um, an innovation ecosystem. Um, and so that, that may be seem a big challenge because traditionally you would do things within within the organization or the business. But now you're reaching out and building a, more of a network of alliances and that would require organizational cultural change. Is that right? Yes, I think so. It's um, we, businesses have talked about customer centricity for a long time. But now I'd suggest that we're talking about counterpart centricity, where it's you know, effectively everyone that you're dealing with, uh, whether it's a customer, whether it's a supplier, whether it's a, a, an alliance partner, is in a sense uh, someone whose pain you need to recognize and uh, whose priorities you need to be able to understand and you need to be able to draw uh, and, and lead your organization into a position where it's going to be able to respond to those, uh, those, those priorities. Belinda, are, they, are these tensions similar in, in the third sector or are they different? I think they're similar. Um, one of the things that occurs to me when Chris is talking there about, about power and control um, is so, so we've seen the emergence in the UK over the last sort of 20 years of a, of a social finance ecosystem. And that has been driven um, very much by the government in the first instance, thinking that we needed to find more actual ways of uni using finance uh, to support communities. Um, and they seeded a number of organizations, which meant that the power still remained, even though the, the organizations were independent of government, uh, they were carrying some of these internal messages of, of, of government policy. And that's proven very difficult, even though there's been a lot of funds, at kind of the demand, the supply and the intermediation um, uh, areas, there's still the ecosystem hasn't sort of really got the um, dynamism and the naturalness that perhaps might have emerged if it had uh, if, if it had been self-developing. Is this a problem of actually building the connections? So you may have all the relevant players within an innovation ecosystem, but you need to build the connecting role. I think you mentioned it in terms of the, the entrepreneur. Yes, but 
I think for us in the in the social sector, that probably isn't something that we identify as a problem. Um, it's you know it's small enough and niche enough that people are finding each other. Particularly, people are interested in the innovation part of it. Um, but I can imagine commercially that actually finding the correct players or the right players rather than the correct ones, the most suitable, may be more challenging. Is that correct, Shaz? Because I mean, if if you look at the many of the big businesses, particularly in the in the in the innovation sphere, the big technologically driven businesses, they have resources and usually people who, who can actually build the connections with external organizations and external businesses. Bigger challenge for small and medium-sized enterprises if to, to want to be within the innovation ecosystem. How do they build those connections? It, it's true that it, it, it's a challenge, but that's where you have these four up platforms uh, uh, occasions. So I've seen this happen in the world of fintech where you had uh, big banks and uh, fintechs. So you could argue on the one side you have Barclays and World Bank of Scotland looking for digitalization on uh, building financial ecosystems where they can't do the digital part very well. So they're looking for potential partners um, who do digital well, and these are usually fintechs. And these fintechs, of course, are looking for resources, for investments. for. So initially, when you talk to fintechs and uh, banks, banks used to call them our biggest threat competition. Last few years, if you ask banks about fintechs, they talk talk about them in a much more collaborative manner. So I've seen this conversation shift over the last five years from shifting to fintechs, destroying banking, to fintechs actually helping banking modernize and digitalize. So that relationship has has emerged. And where it happens, probably for our industry, for our, it's all formal and informal networks through which the, the, uh, these relationships come about. Belinda. And additionally, Barclays funded and support um, an incubator for fintech ventures. And we see that in other um, large corporates that are um, trying to access the, the joys of innovation through the supporting of, of business incubator programs. And that's sort of a very common methodology at the moment, which replicates something that happened in the 70s and 80s as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how long it lasts. But I think in finance, that's particularly interesting. But, uh, but it is, it is uh, it, Michael, to come back to what you were saying earlier, it is a cultural change. Uh, if, we, if we say, well, what happens when the newcomer comes into the ecosystem? Uh, in the old days, we might have said, well, everybody prefers to do business with the, uh, with the, the usual suspects. Uh, now there's a, a much greater willingness to say, well, if someone's new on the block, they have new perspectives, they have new knowledge, they have new uh, access to resources. Let's see uh, what they have to bring to the party. But it isn't a process that these big firms are just are waiting for the small firms to do take all the risks, make, make do the innovations, and then the bigger firms are just moving in once the risks have been taken by the smaller players. Is it still do, do we still have the, going back to this issue of a dominant hub here in, in these in these uh, ecosystems? I think it varies from industry to industry. You're correct that that you could argue in the uh, in the automobile industry ecosystems, uh, big cars, have, uh, big manufacturers, German manufacturers have pretty much waited things to happen despite having the lead electric tesla was much ahead it started out with the electric even the uh, autonomous driving if you look at the big car makers they've always been laggards they still are laggards and they're waiting for market to develop and now they're all launching the electric models and the autonomous cars so you see that dynamics in the uh, in the transport industry whereas in um, in the uh, banking industry the changes in the insurance industry the changes have been much faster fundamental uh, and there uh, you can't really play this wait and see and wait for others to develop m the market and then you enter later because you could seriously get upended quicker than later so i think it, it would vary across different types of services and ecosystems what i'd suggest they have in common is that there's a recognition emerging that it's a good thing to be a partner of choice if you're a large company 
it's a good thing to be seen as mm. a, a, a collaborative player that is not going to uh, exploit its partners, but is going to uh, is, is going to try to uh, act, act towards them in a way that's it's going to uh, lend itself to future collaboration. And I think we're also seeing that in the really large kind of third sector charitable organisations who traditionally have found innovation and doing things new ways really super difficult. Um, and so increasingly they are looking, um, they're recognising that and looking to find partners to, to, to try new things. I mean, there are very good reasons why, um, you know, if you're delivering service to vulnerable beneficiaries, you don't want to muck around and try innovating if there's a risk of it going wrong. So there are structural reasons why those organisations find it hard to innovate. Um, and one of the ways to kind of overcome that sort of um, ossification is through, through finding act, actively finding partners. We've talked about sort of ecosystems uh, in a very positive light, I, I may add, but mainly in terms of the level of the organisation or, or, or the business. Um, is geography important? I mean, because there's often a notion that ecosystems are, particularly innovation ecosystems, are actually sort of very spatially concentrated. I mean, is, is geography or proximity important here? Shaz? I, again, it, it, I would say yes, on average it matters, but uh, there are very different kinds of networks developing. So if you consider the ecosystem of uh, a company like Uber, um, what really matters to the most part is the ecosystem of Uber in a city. So if you live in London, you care about Uber's network in London. You don't care so much about Uber's network in New York, unless you are a completely crazy traveler, travels every day. Um, but for Airbnb, you care about the Airbnb network outside your home city because you never need the Airbnb in your home city. So if you look at the uh, network of ecosystem that's developed for Airbnb, it's a bit like a global connected ecosystem, whereas for um, Uber, it's very city-based. And then if you see Uber being challenged by companies like Grab in Singapore, in China, they couldn't compete with Didi because local knowledge there was somehow more important than having this wide network scale that Uber manages elsewhere. So where Airbnb is difficult to challenge from that perspective because it's not one city you can challenge Airbnb in. It has to be across those different locations. So I, I guess it would vary uh, the, the, what you're talking about, the geographical necessity for proximity, etc. It would, it would vary. Chris? Historically, we've, we've looked at what used to be called clusters, uh, re, you know, geographically co-located industries uh, from the perspective of talent uh, and, and t talent being able to move to wherever it's going to uh, add the most value. And uh, being some kind of focal point for finance investment and so on. Uh, I think what the ecosystem concept is adding to that is around uh, one of the ideas that Shaz mentioned uh, at, at the top of our podcast about, uh, uh, about everyone being in it together and, and having a sort of common sense of, uh, of purpose, right? Certainly we see that in the Cambridge uh, ecosystem, that there's a general sense that we would all like Cambridge to succeed. Uh, and then there's something about presence and credibility and trust, which you know, all of those things are easier to build up in geographic co-location than uh, through, uh, through, through Skype or whatever uh, software you like to use for uh, virtual communication. Linda. 
Yeah, I think it would be uh, disingenuous for us sitting here in Cambridge not to mention, yes, that what we used to call the Cambridge Cluster, this this very broad ecosystem for innovation across the city, both kind of within and without the university, um, uh, which is extraordinary, but it's also basically extremely hard for anybody else to replicate unless they start kind of 800 years ago, and uh, and then we might get to where we are now. Um, but there are other cities um, and places around the world um, that have uh, perhaps the social innovation specific ecosystems and so here in the UK the West Country has um, uh, around to the Bristol area a lot of interesting social innovation a lot of interest in um, uh, community run businesses and including social finance organisations as you mentioned there Chris the, the financing being a part of what we need to innovate and so you can see these um, uh, sort of uh, interest specific um, areas developing. So uh, trying to to tease out why geography may be important in some cases. Is it to do with, Chris, you're mentioning trust. Is it that, you, that trust is very important? Collaboration and trust are something that build up over time and built from interactions. Is mm. it? It's the density of people and relationships. And one of the things that we find working in Cambridge compa compared with working in London is that it's, um, it, it's, it's small enough that you can find the people you want to talk to. Because obviously it, there is somebody here who knows the answer to your question, but you can actually find them because there are these dense over-connecting, uh, overlapping connecting networks. And, and I think it does come down to individuals at the end of the day. Although I'm not sure how that applies to your sort of Uber and Airbnb examples. I do agree. I'm actually working on a project where you talk talking about where uh, this notion of collective identity. Um, so how does it, is it a, is it a precedent or, a, or is it an outcome or a process? So do you need to have collective identity for an ecosystem to develop or in a sense that you need collective identity to mobilize people to collaborate? So in that sense, if you look at these two sides, working together, proximity, meeting, having uh, common standards, joint platforms, occasions to uh, work on projects all build collective identity, which then helps collaboration. So I would argue, I, I agree that that helps in the absence of having the geographic, geographical proximity or other kinds of uh, occasions to network. Often you would need alternative means to develop that sense of weakness, the sense of sharedness. You could still do that, it would be just harder to develop that sense of collective identity for more dispersed kinds of um, organizations as well as uh, people working in those organizations. Again, on this, this issue of sort of geographical proximity, what's, there's an important role here for sort of economic anchors, institutions within a space that actually can bring people together. It might be a university, mm. it might be a hospital, it could be a major employer. Is there a certain role for sort of anchor institutions to, to help a place become more innovative? I think there is. I think the Judge Business School has been trying that. I'm not sure how to judge the success, but that's what we've been trying. And I think every institution, Bocconi University in Milan, uh, so I can speak more about universities uh, that I'm, I, from my own experience, they definitely try and create, be this orchestrator, bring together different communities, start collaborative relationships on the entrepreneurial side and the academic side, use alumni, use networks. People who have studied here, people who will be studying here, people who have already studied here, formed companies. So it's a great sort of a common point of affiliation for people. They've all been, all been to this university, which creates that identity I was talking about earlier from that perspective. So the university is a great forum for, for creating that sense and bringing these different communities uh, together. One of the concepts we see in, if we look at the history of innovation, history of ideas generally, is that it's very helpful to have in the mix some kind of non-commercial space, right? some kind of place where uh, 
there's a freer exchange of ideas uh, because nobody can see the value just yet. Uh, it's sort of, it's there, everybody knows there's value, but it's not, uh, it's not fully formed yet. Uh, you know, some studies say the rise of the British Empire is down to the, uh, was down to the, the, the coffee houses of London uh, in the 17th century and the, the free exchange of ideas that happened there. And so anchor institutions uh, can really help their, their ecosystem if they foster these spaces for uh, non-goal-directed exchange uh, of ideas where uh, after a while of fermenting, some entrepreneur or some innovator is going to to pluck the uh, to, to pluck the, uh, the 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 idea when it's ripe uh, from uh, what's 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 growing in that space. I think it's it's very interesting that you mentioned ideas fermenting because I think one of the anchor institutions that is very important in the Cambridge phenomenon. Mm. It's actually the public house. Um, we tend we might talk about the business school or we might talk about the science park or we talk about the university, but actually the public house is often a place where people met and exchange ideas, and they're often young entrepreneurs and young scientists who, who met others, including a you know, receptive bank manager to help to fund these ideas. So actually these, these sorts of social spaces where people interact are very, very important in, in innovation. And often we, we sometimes ignore them because we think well, innovation is all about hard science or about coming up with a patent or so on. I just mentioned you mentioned indirect goals. There's a word for them called oblique goals. So if, if I think the non-commercial point you make is pretty important because it, it creates a, that greater level of trust as well as not thinking I'm here to make money only. So if you set goals, we'll grow by 10% next year. That's a very direct goal. If you say, I just want to do well, growth will come obliquely rather than as a direct goal. And that's increasingly I've heard this organization is trying not to set these very, even business organizations are not trying to set these 10%, 5% goals, but rather striving for excellence and other things where goal then should be a byproduct of that anyways, rather than a direct target in itself. And I've heard that, that apparently that's helping innovation in those uh, organizations. So coming back to your thing. If, if we just sort of one, one final topic to, to, to think about, we've talked about the organization, um, be it you know, the private sector or, or third sector. We've talked about the, the space, the region, the city, or the innovative cluster. Um, what, about, what about countries? How do countries create an effective ecosystem? Because arguably we say many countries focus on innovations that are crucial for economic growth or to drive productivity. But innovation is often talked about in terms of R&D or funding science and whatever, not these sorts of um, perhaps building networks and building ecosystems. I mean, it, what should countries do if they want to build a more effective ecosystem? Reduce bureaucracy, for one. <laughs> um, they, um, well, I well mean, perhaps you need more bureaucracy. Perhaps you need uh, more people, more organizations joining up these networks. Initially, yes. Uh, so it's, it's, I, I agree with you, it's a phasal story. But one, one study I would like to qualify this with is sometimes we seem to think that America is more entrepreneurial than, than Europe or EU or Denmark is more entrepreneurial. And there's some, uh, some studies that have shown that across. But if you look at a colleague study, Jaydeep Prabhu's here, who looked at cultures across and, uh, countries, distance from equator, uh, corporate cultures, innovation explanation, almost 95% was determined by corporate culture and not national culture. So it was the interesting part of that story was that, yes, national culture is not irrelevant, but mostly what counts is the uh, organizational culture. On the other hand, this is not to say that com uh, countries can't do anything to uh, breed innovation ecosystems, uh, including, as you said, institutional support. 
um, um, uh, laws, regulations. You said government spurred, Evelinda, earlier on here, those public-private partnerships. So that would be argued would be uh, a national attempt or initiative to get things going and then letting it get momentum for others to join in and then let that take off. So that's what we imagine. There's a wonderful book on this topic of, uh, of uh, how, to, how nations can, can stimulate uh, innovation ecosystems. And it's, uh, it's called The Boulevard of Broken Dreams uh, by a guy named Josh Lerner. Uh, and it's wonderful because it's 13 chapters of terrible failures, uh, wasted money, uh, ridiculous ideas, and then one extremely short chapter, uh, five pages, saying, so this is what you should do uh, based on all these failure case studies. Uh, and, and I think it, it, it actually points up that we don't know that much yet. Uh, about this, the route to success for for these uh, for, for 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 national ecosystems, we can say don't uh, rely too much on throwing money at the problem, right? Don't rely too much on uh, artificial means to try to supercharge the system. Somehow put talent at the center uh, at the center of it. Operate with a light touch, but you know the 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 the, the puzzle is so difficult uh, that I don't think uh, we we really have robust answers yet. Uh, for how countries can just say, okay, we want to be more innovative, here's the playbook. Yes, I'm picking that up. Uh, I think we could probably interrogate if we had another podcast, the idea of wanting to be more innovative. Um, so, because what we know is that innovation as it's working at the moment is is tending to exacerbate inequality. So two of the most innovative places in the UK are Oxford and Cambridge, and they're also two of the most unequal, unequal places in the UK. And if our innovations are created by the prestigious corporations or equally the prestigious countries, then those innovations spread faster and further more rapidly, uh, regardless of whether or not they're actually good uh, and also regardless of whether or not they're good for us. Um, so I think there are quite important systemic ideas before we get too on the bandwagon of the idea of innovation being inherently good. That doesn't seem to be the evidence as it's actually landing on the ground in my, in my view. Well, well, we are running out of time, but I think that's a very important topic for a future podcast, the dark side of innovation, because we have assumed throughout our discussions today that innovation is a good thing and we want more of it. Perhaps sometimes innovation may be a bad thing or certainly, certainly have adverse effects in certain areas. And perhaps we need to think about the dark side of innovation and try and, and to mitigate that. But uh, thank you very much for my guests today, Dr. Belinda Bell, Professor Shaz Ansari and Dr. Chris Coleridge. Thank you for joining us and I hope you can join us next time.